Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. O Holy Lord, our God and Savior, we ask for your instruction and wisdom this day, that we might know you and the ordinances you have appointed for us, the instruction of your word, which is a light to our feet. We pray that you would uh, strengthen us by your word to instruct us, that we might be moved to true worship and service uh, to you, our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to chapter 28 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that is on baptism, of baptism. If you're following along in the hymnal, that's page 864. We looked last week at the sacraments, the sacraments in general, um, how many sacraments in the New Testament are there? What? Two. Yes, two. And what are they? Yes, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so today we're going to look at baptism, and next week, assuming we finish this chapter this week, uh, next we would go on to the Lord's Supper. Um, Let's go ahead and dive in with the first paragraph, first article, which is basically describing what baptism is. You know, what, what is baptism? There's a shorter answer in the shorter catechism. Um, this is, goes a little bit longer. Same idea, though. Baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Uh, That last part, that it's supposed to be continued in his church until the end of the world, might seem self-evident, but there were those like the Quakers who denied that that water baptism was to be uh, used in the church. So it's important to note that Christ instituted it as part of his great commission, setting up his church for the rest of this age, um, and that he would be with his church unto the end of the age. And this is something that we continue to practice today. And it's ordained by Jesus Christ, so man did not come up with it. Uh, Christ appointed it. We read in John that even during his earthly ministry, uh, there was baptism going on, that he baptized through his apostles, his apostles actually baptized. Um, But then at the end of his ministry, before his ascension into heaven, we have the, the Great Commission where he told the church to make disciples of all nations, and to do so, you, baptizing and, and teaching. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded. And uh, these ordinances, these means of grace, are effective because Christ is with us to the end of the age uh, to make these things effectual, that this is not a vain task that we do. And it has several different ends, several different purposes. 
Um, the first here is mentioned the, the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. Um, it's not only for that, but, but it is for that, uh, that it's for the solemn admission of the person into the visible church. Now, we ought to be baptizing those who are members of the visible church. How, how have we defined members of the visible church in an earlier chapter? Yeah, anyone else? And their children. And their children, yes. Those who profess faith and obedience to Christ and um, or profess the true religion and their children. And so we should receive those as members of the visible church and we've been given an, an external visible mark or sign by which that person is uh, received into the visible church, recognized as such, and we can think of how Paul appeals to baptism as a sign of the church's unity in 1 Corinthians 12, that you are baptized uh, by the Spirit into one body, or how in Ephesians, when he's appealing to the unity of the body, that we have one Lord, we have one Father, we have one Spirit, we have one faith, we have one baptism, that there's one baptism that binds us uh, together as a sign of our, our unity and our identity as the church, even in the Great Commission, you can think that, that baptism is marking the disciples of Christ. Uh, that this, that this, you're a disciple of Christ, and now you're on this, this training program, you know, to, to now be learning to observe his commandments. Uh, but this is how we are identified visibly, externally, as Christ's disciples. Uh, so similar to the way circumcision worked in the Old Testament, that's the people of God was the circumcision, that those outside were, were the uncircumcised. And so similarly, a baptism now is that external mark of the covenant people of God. But it's not only that. Not, what, what else is it? Say sign and seal. Notice that to be unto him, that is the person baptized, to be to the person baptized a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. The uh, Bible doesn't speak so much uh, of, the, of baptism being your profession to the world, although we'll see it does bind us to, to, uh, to be consecrated unto God and, and to assume the obligations of the covenant, but primarily it is God's word to us. Um, calling it an... Uh, def- there's some that would define, I think I mentioned last time, as an act of obedience. Uh, the Baptists, some Baptists like to ident- identify it as an act of obedience. It's like calling the gospel an act of obedience. Uh, well, of course, we should obediently receive it, but the thing itself is not so much an act of obedience as, as God's word to us. Um, and baptism being uh, the gospel made visible, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace to you. And so it's a sign to the person being baptized more than it is a sign uh, to the world about what's inside the person. Um, at the very least, it is a sign and seal to that person of the covenant of grace. Um, as was circumcision in the Old Testament, again, that language of sign and seal comes from Romans chapter 4, verse 11, that um, Abraham received circumcision, the sign of circumcision, that was a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Uh, that was the significance of circumcision, confirming what he already had by faith, that justification. Uh, and this was to seal it, to confirm it, 
and then of course it was given to the heirs of the covenant as well. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 speaks of the spiritual significance of circumcision, that Christians have been circumcised spiritually with the circumcision of Christ, uh, that we have what it represents, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, so that baptism is now that external sign of this same spiritual reality that circumcision uh, once symbolized, that of uh, the forgiveness of sins, you know, justification, and the uh, renewal of the internal person, the regeneration of the person. Uh, just as they would say, you should be circumcised in your heart, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, or, or Jeremiah chapter 4. Uh, so baptism represents a renewal of the heart as well. <clears throat> so it's, it's like circumcision, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Circumcision was called the sign of the covenant, or even the covenant itself. Um, and that means also a, a sign and seal of the benefits of the covenant of grace, particularly of one's you know, uh, admission into the covenant of grace, that one is definitively now a member of, of this covenant, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins. Uh, there's a couple passages that we could go to here. In Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So notice he's arguing you've been baptized into Christ. That's kind of the most fundamental thing. You've been engrafted into him. uh, That this baptism represents your union with Christ that has been affected by God's grace. And therefore, if you're participating in Christ, you're participating in his death. You're participating in his burial. Participating in his resurrection. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, and that word united is, is, is like the word engrafted, kind of the way a uh, branch might be grafted onto the tree. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism is a sign seal of that ingrafting into Christ, that union with Christ um, that's, that's uh, done, and of regeneration. Um, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 speaks in this way. Titus is a small book, so it's harder to find. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, There might be debate on whether, is the washing referred to here baptism, or is it what baptism represents that's being referred to here? Maybe it's both, you could say, in either case, um, that regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a washing. And so we have this physical washing that would aptly represent this grace that is given by the Spirit. And we'll come back to that. What's the efficacy of baptism? It comes from the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that does that inner work. Um, We also have texts like Galatians 
3.27, as many as have been baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ. Again, this representing our ingrafting into Christ. Or Acts chapter 22, when Paul is recounting his conversion, and Ananias speaks to him. Ananias says to Saul, or Paul, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Um, Again, speaking here sacramentally, uh, uniting closely the sign and the thing signified, but what's the significance of the washing of baptism is the significance of washing away your sins, you know, by faith, calling upon his name. Uh, And so it's both referring to our justification, the forgiveness of sins, as well as our inner renewal, uh, the cleansing of one's heart to be a new creation. And so it's a sign of these, these spiritual benefits of the covenant of grace. It's also, though, as a sign of the covenant, uh, a sign that obligates us to assume the obligations of the covenant. Uh, if you are bought if you are redeemed by Christ, you've been bought with a price and ought to no longer live for yourself, but live for Christ. And so it's a sign and seal of, of his, referring to the person baptized, of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. That's what Paul is arguing from in Romans 6. You have been baptized, so of course you can't just keep on living to sin, you know, living in sin, uh, you've been baptized. Of course, he has to explain the meaning of their baptism. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death, you've been baptized then into his resurrection to walk in newness of life. So, as he applies it then, you should regard yourself as dead to sin and alive unto righteousness. Present your instruments, your, your body member parts, as instruments of righteousness, as to be yourself a slave of righteousness, no longer a slave of sin. Uh, that if you have been... Uh, if you have been united to Christ, forgiven in him, you ought to walk in newness of life. And so baptism has an implicit vow in it, an engagement to be the Lord. Uh, engagement, speaking here, not like a wedding engagement precisely, but the general sense of being engaged, obligated uh, to serve the Lord. Any questions here on the first article on baptism generally? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's one that is, a lot has been written about. Um, and Calvin would say it's not the visible church, like it's not the Catholic church like it claims that we have to do whatever it teaches. And, um, but there are, uh, he'd speak in terms of remnants of the visible church, baptism being one of those things that still exists there. Um, I think the best analogy for it is like the northern kingdom in Old Testament Israel, where, yeah, they were obligated by the covenant, they had some of the signs of the covenant, but they were also idolaters <laughs> and acting unfaithfully to those signs that they had. Um, and, and so the people should have gone down to Jerusalem you know, to worship in purity there. Um, so maybe you want to call that 
yes, part of the visible church, but unfaithful and, you know, largely apostate or, or something like that. Would that be the same it probably depends on how liberal, but you, probably something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it probably depends on, on, how, on how far we're going. If it's no longer a profession of the faith, you know, if they're no longer believing God or, you know, the Trinity or Christ's death and resurrection, you know, then it we're in a further position than even the Roman Catholics. Yeah, for, further gone. Uh, the visible church is those who profess the faith and their children, and that's recognized by baptism. Um, certainly, we would recognize uh, only Trinitarian baptisms, so Mormons are baptized, but we would not recognize them as part of the visible church. Um, all right, administration of baptism. <clears throat> So more of the details about the nitty-gritty of the baptism itself. We looked at kind of the significance of baptism, but then Article 2 is more about the, the ceremony itself, the, the ritual. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. <clears throat> so... What do you need for a baptism? Well, you need water, all right? We're not going to baptize with sand or, or air or, you know, any other substance. You baptize with water. That's pretty well established in Scripture uh, that we're baptizing with water. See, here there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? All right? Acts 8, you know, they're baptizing with water. Um, and... Uh, John the Baptist was saying, I baptize with water... But Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, so you have the sign, the thing signified. You know, the, the sign is water, washing with water. Um, it's not more specific than washing. We'll get to mode of baptism in a minute, but uh, you do need water. And with that water, that person is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Uh, it's Matthew uh, 28, the Great Commission, would specify um, there are references to being baptized in the name of Jesus, but those are not, first of all, they're not imperative passages. They are descriptive historical passages, so this would have greater weight. This is Christ telling us what to do. And secondly, when the book of Acts, for example, speaks of being baptized in the name of Jesus, uh, it's not necessarily referring to the formula being used, but uh, more of the baptism authorized by Jesus, the baptism of Christians, those who follow Jesus, um, it could be used in a more general sense. It doesn't mean that the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus. <laughs> That's the way that non-Trinitarian United Pentecostals try to harmonize it, which is wrong because it's not Trinitarian. It's modalism, and that's uh, heresy. So uh, it's the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son being Jesus. Uh, of course, by union with the Son, we are brought to the Father and receive the Spirit. You know, that, that Christ is central here. Um, Christ himself being baptized uh, himself and being united with him, we also are received by the Father, and he sends the Spirit to unite us to him. 
but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the, the word and sign together uh, are essential for the sacrament. And they should be, they should be uh, these essential things should be administered by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. We mentioned that last time. Uh, we'll see it again later in the Lord's Supper. Uh, that it's not just for anyone to administer. These things should be administered by one who has been called to uh, preach the word in an authoritative sense in the church as an ambassador of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, a minister of the New New Covenant, um, as 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 3, other passages would describe, that as signs and seals of this covenant, uh, would go along with the administration of the word, um, especially as it's being a sign of inclusion in the visible church. Now, this goes along well with the next article, which is that of about mode. Yes. Sorry, did we talk about what it meant to be lawfully called? So we didn't so much call, talk about what it meant to be lawfully called. Um, and... Right, so you don't just get to a point, you just say, hey, I'm a minister, you know, I got the degree online, you know, uh, you, there, there has to be an orderly call to that office being a, a minister. So the lawfully is referring to the church, not the servant. Right, right, yes. Like, they would appeal kind of by analogy to Hebrews where it talks about the priests, you didn't get to appoint yourself as priest, you know, but but you're called unto the office, similar with the minister of, of the word. Um, there's probably a variety of ways in which one might be lawfully called, as far as the details go, uh, system that different churches use, but uh, still an orderly manner of proceeding with the call of the church. <clears throat> so Article 3 speaks of the mode. Um, how much water do we need at a baptism for it to be a real baptism? Um, not really uh, it doesn't need to be part of this except that it's a controversy so uh, it goes ahead and says dipping of the person into the water is not necessary but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person Um, there was some debate in the Westminster Assembly on on this but uh, this is what they concluded that uh, dipping pouring, sprinkling are all lawful, legitimate forms of baptism. That doesn't have to be uh, dipping of the person into the water and out, uh, but uh, pouring or sprinkling are right administrations of baptism. And uh, the essential thing is that of washing. Uh, The Greek word baptizo, or uh, the Greek word for baptism, uh, is used in a variety of contexts for immersion, sprinkling, and pouring. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. It's used for Jewish ceremonies, which uh, would sometimes be sprinkling, like when you're sanctifying, cleansing tables and couches and other things that you're not going to be immersing, that the word would refer to a a cleansing, a washing. Um, Even people, some will take baths, some will take showers. You know, it's it's still washing with, with water. Um, there are good reasons to prefer, prefer pouring and sprinkling. Uh, certainly that imagery is used to refer to cleansing in the Bible and even with the Spirit. Ezekiel 36 
speaks of the new covenant uh, being, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean and I'll put my spirit within you and give you a new heart. Um, And so, uh, using that imagery, the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was in the chariot, you know, and he's reading what? He's reading Isaiah 53. Uh, and then he comes across water and says, what's preventing me from being baptized? Here's water. You know, I believe. Why, why would he connect these things? Well, if you actually, there weren't chapter divisions back then. If you go to the beginning of that passage at the end of 52, it talks about how he will sprinkle many nations. Now, there's a reference to sprinkling there in the passage that he was reading. Um, and the Spirit is spoken of as being poured out upon us. We're not necessarily spoken of being immersed in it, you know, or, or being dipped in it, but the Spirit uh, being poured out upon uh, the people, uh, even uh, like in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Um, additionally, really, all these kinds of modes are a kind of immersion. You're just not fully immersed as much as another mode, uh, but you're all being covered with water, and then you emerge from the water. In fact, Calvin's catechism in Geneva spoke of pouring or sprinkling as a kind of, uh, well, I'll go ahead and read it. He says, a figure of death is set before us when the water is poured upon the head, and the figure of a new life when instead of remaining immersed underwater, we only enter it for a moment as a kind of grave out of which we instantly emerge. Um, that's like the classic Baptist argument. Like you have to be dunked into it and pulled out because it's getting buried with him and, and rising to new life. And Calvin uses that same imagery, even using the word immersion, but referring to the water being poured on your head because you're covered by it and then you come out of it. You know, that, that you're new. You're a new person. Uh, you are been re- renewed by the water of, of baptism. Um, it really doesn't... Uh, they're all legitimate forms, but uh, pouring and sprinkling, especially because it's an application of the water to you, um, is to be preferred. All right, so we're about uh, half past the hour, and we're about halfway through the chapter. So I'm thinking that I'm going to go ahead and stop here. But are there any other questions on baptism? So we still have yet to cover who should be baptized. Um, I think we kind of already implicitly covered that, right? Members of the visible church, if, if, if we already define them as those who profess the true religion and their children, uh, should be self-evident then who's getting baptized, but we'll look at that in more detail uh, next week. Um, also, some qualifications. There's the thing and the thing signified, does that mean all who are baptized are saved? Or that none but who are baptized are saved? No, it's not so inseparably connected um, that, that, that those things are the case. There's some qualifications here. But then it goes on to talk about the efficacy of baptism, that, uh, that, there, that baptism is used as a means of grace, as an instrument of God, um, that there is an efficacy to it, though it's not dependent upon the outward act, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit to those to whom the grace belongs. We'll get into what that means and the right use of baptism, too. And then finally, how many times should a person be baptized? And the short answer is once. Um, it's different than the Lord's Supper in this respect. There's a group of people that aren't 
really a church, but they're getting together and studying the Bible, and then they end up baptizing each other. Should they should they get rebaptized because it wasn't a lawfully called ministry? That might be a great question for next time. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, we'll probably cover in a little more detail next time, but uh, that's that shouldn't be done. <laughs> is the easy is the the brief answer. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your means of grace, the outward signs and seals and your word and prayer that you have appointed for our growth in grace, for the strengthening of our faith, that we might rest upon your promises of forgiveness and regeneration, of the new life that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bring us to remember um, the baptism with which we have been baptized the promises sealed therein, that we might embrace them and rest upon them and walk accordingly as those who have been washed to now live as your disciples and not to be like the pig that returns to the mire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.